question. I, I thought I had lost all the money of my investors. I thought that my name was going to be plastered on the Chicago Tribune business section. Joel Friedland screws <laughs> up, loses everybody's money, goes broke. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello, welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, excited to have Joel Friedland. Joel, how are you doing today? Great, Todd. Great to see you. Yeah, well, great to have you. Uh, a little bit about Joel. He is with Britt Properties. Uh, he's been buying industrial real estate for over 40 years in the Chicago uh, area. And uh, we're going to talk about something unique, which I think is exciting to talk about. I want to get into the the reasoning, the mindset, why, but Joel has been buying all cash. And that's been how he's uh, done real estate through the years and continues to do real estate through the years. Uh, that is a very uncommon um, practice. You know, there certainly are a few people, uh, groups that do that, but it's just not how most uh, people do things. So with that said, Joel, you're in sunny Florida today. You're not in Chicago, although you do live in Chicago, but you're just uh, hanging out in uh, Florida today. So, so welcome from Florida. Uh, thank you. It's great here. <laughs> you said before we recorded, it's uh, what did you say? It's like, it's your paradise or something. I can't remember. It's my exactly. happy place. Your happy place. My happy place. Yeah. So why are you living in Chicago and not just permanently living in Florida or would it become less of a, of a happy place if you're just permanently living there? Well, you talk about your three pillars and I'll yeah. give you my first one. It's uh, family. Family is to me really important. My mother is a therapist and she says there's two kinds of sunshine, the kind you get in Florida and then there's the kind you get by being with the people that you care about the most, no matter where they are, no matter how cold it is there. And so that's, that's it. That's it yeah. in a nutshell. I've got uh, three kids, uh, three grandkids, two brothers, uh, brothers and brother-in-law, sister-in-law, everybody's living within 10 minutes of us in Chicago. Yeah. There's something to be said about that. Um, my parents, I think wanted to move to Florida for a period of time, but they've got 20, whatever it is uh, now, 20, 20 grandkids, whatever it is. Um, and they're like, and, and the vast, vast majority are in Minnesota or, or Wisconsin. And they said, no, it's just not going to work. You know, yeah. we, they, they enjoy too many things about the family to say, Hey, we're going to live in Florida the rest of our lives. So they visit, they do the same as you. They visit, they take a, a couple of weeks or a month and go down there and hang out and, and then they come back. <laughs> so, yeah, it's great. It's great to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. So Brit Properties, you've been doing this for 40 years. So we're going to dive into some of the lessons learned, but I want the first thing I want to talk about is the big thing that I mentioned in the beginning is the cash thing. Why are you so crazy and buying real estate with cash when everybody else is buying it and they're leveraging it? And some people are highly leveraging it, 80% or greater. And some people are saying, hey, we're conservative and we're at 50 or 60%. But you're saying, I'm just cash. Why? Like, why? 
What, what's the what's the reason? So I've got a list of reasons. The, the primary reason is because 40 years worth of real estate experience means that I've been through the cycles. In 1981, when I got in the business, after I graduated from the University of Michigan, national champions, um, the, uh, the business was really small. There were very few people in any kind of real estate. My, my grandfather was an investor in the stock market. He said, real estate, who does that? Right. The 1980s. Right. And I got well, there into- There was very, very few REITs at that point in time. I mean, oh. they were just starting to, to kind of get into, into real estate and um, insurance companies and the life companies and all of that. It just wasn't like it is today. And then, of course, now you talk about private syndications and private equity groups and and, and family offices and the whole work. So, yeah, 100% way different. Sorry for interrupting you. Yeah, no, no problem. So what ended up happening is I went into the business. I was a broker, an industrial real estate broker mm. in Chicago. There's 300 industrial real estate brokers. It's a huge industrial market. There's uh, 1.5 billion square feet and 16 wow thousand industrial buildings and industrial has been really hot lately but when i got into the business um i i started syndicating when i was in my 20s and i loved the idea of bringing twenty thousand dollars in from a number of different people each person would put 20 grand in i put 20 grand in and i i saw in 1981 how badly people had gotten crushed in the recession that was taking place at that time with 17% interest rates. Imagine that, you know, people think today, Oh, it's six, seven, 8%, 17 was nuts. Yeah. <laughs> and so I saw a lot of investors were losing their properties to lenders. So I decided to just go all cash. I said, well, I can't lose a property to a lender if I don't have a lender. Yeah. So I did my first couple deals all cash. And then I became maybe unlucky. I can't say whether it was lucky or unlucky, but I ended up finding a young partner and I taught him the business. And he said, Joel, we could do much better if we would borrow some money. We'd make higher IRRs. Our investors would do better. We'd make more carried interests. And I said, you know, Dave, I don't really want to do that. He said, come on, we have to do it. I, everyone does it. So I gave in and we started doing deals with debt. We did a lot of deals. We did dozens and dozens of industrial acquisitions with debt. And we made it through the recession of 1991, which was pretty tough. And then we came to 2008. And I had sort of been like the, the frog in boiling water. Who, you know, you start out, you put the frog in and they don't feel it as it starts to boil. And eventually they boil to death. That's what happened to me is in 2008, I had 50 buildings all with debt. Yeah. Every one of them. And at that time, real estate crashed, the market crashed, the stock market crashed, and I owed seven banks money, millions and millions of dollars that I had personally guaranteed. And banks don't have a sense of humor. So I had seven banks calling me saying, we need you to pay these down. You, we need you to sell these. And we were under pressure and my partner and I were fighting. And why were we fighting? Because we were fighting over money we didn't have. Who's going who's gonna to take care of the money we don't have? So when you borrow, your margin of error, if things go bad, is very, very slim. And that's what happened to me. So I realized I went into a funk 
Todd, like you can't even imagine. I, I thought I had lost all the money of my investors. I thought that my name was going to be plastered on the Chicago Tribune business section. Joel Friedland screws <laughs> up, loses everybody's money, goes broke. And I just, I was so ashamed and I felt so scared. I worked really, really hard to come out of that mess. And when I came out, I examined who am I and what do I want? And I determined that what I want and who I am is a person that doesn't take as much risk as other people. I can't do it. And I actually determined, this is kind of crazy, and maybe you've heard this before, maybe not. I determined that I had a gambling problem because a lot of real estate guys become addicted to the deal. They say they're deal junkies and they try to buy as much as they can, as fast as they can. And it's not all that different from a casino. In a casino, the problem is the house always wins because every player doesn't have unlimited money. So if you come up against a situation where tenants leave or rents go down or rates go up, it's a problem. And I decided for me, which is different from everybody else, and I'm sure different from you, I don't have the tolerance to lose money under pressure to a lender ever again, ever again. I went through too tough of a time. And so I don't want to gamble again. And to me, borrowing a lot of money on a deal is like gambling because you know when something breaks, when the roof has to be replaced and you don't have the money to do it, where do you get the money? If you're leveraged up, how do you get the cash? And then you might be in a position where you have to sell under pressure at the wrong time. So that's the reason that I do all cash deals is I, I don't want to fight with partners. I don't want to fight with banks. And I like to have cash flow and not worry about how, how I'm going to make it work. You don't have to answer this. We have an edit button. But did you lose any deals in 2008 uh, area? Oh, yeah. 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 I had 50 deals. I had 50 buildings. And I gave two back to banks. And I had to sell about seven or eight at numbers that if we had kept them seven years later, five years later, we would have had double the money. Yeah. That, and, and that's... That's amazing, right? Because when you think about that, you, you look at those buildings, and I don't know if you, if that, those were losses in the end or, or just less gains than what you would have liked. Maybe there's a mixed bag, but you go, man, if we could have just held it, if we didn't have to, if we weren't forced to sell, held it for another five, seven, ten years, we would have cash flowed, we would have made out really well, and yet we were forced to sell and in a, in a poor market. And had yeah. to lose money. Well, it's interesting. I had nine deals actually. I, I I have a chart. I had nine deals that were bad deals altogether. And of those nine deals, three of them I I've, I've, I'm familiar with your philosophy about not doing C properties, Class C properties. <laughs> three of them were Class C properties, and those are the last ones that do anything good yeah. and where you have the most problems. So three of my nine. The lesson learned was don't do C properties. When things go bad, those are the ones that go worst. Well, they go, they they get bad the first, they get they they get the worst, and then they don't improve until the last. Right. Yeah. So I mean, they hit yeah. the very start of the recession and they don't wait. To, they don't wait. <laughs> you know, they, they're not in a hurry to get back up to profitable. No. Uh, it's just how it no. goes. No, I had a building in Northbrook, Illinois, one of my one of my nine, one of the three really bad class C. 
in industrial, there's a lot of geometry that's really important. It's different than residential. You have to have truck docks, you have to have high ceilings, and you have to have loading. Uh, if it's not truck docks, you have to have drive-in doors. But drive-in doors without a dock is dangerous. And also, you have to have um, the office has to be the right configuration. It has to be small because the warehouse is where everybody makes their money, not the office. Yep. And the office has to be on one floor. So one of my partners in 2007 brought me a deal and he said, this is the greatest deal in Northbrook. And we, I looked at it. I said, Mike, I don't want it. it. It has all the wrong features. The only thing it has is a high ceiling, but it doesn't have loading docks. It's got two story office and there's too much office and the parking's in the wrong place. He said, Joel, I, I love this deal. So we did it. We paid a million two. And it wasn't one of my all cash deals because this was 2007. Mm, and perfect time so, to get into it with. Yeah, we had, we had an $800,000 loan. And we had a $400,000 uh, chunk of equity. And the tenant moved out unexpectedly. Yeah. He was in the tent rental business. He rented tents. Hmm. Biggest uh, tent rental company in the country. And he moved out after his lease was up. I thought he would stay forever. He had been there for 40 years. Yeah. So the tenant left for the same reasons that I hated the building. He needed truck docks. He needed less office. And he found a building not too far away where he could move and have exactly what he wanted instead of staying in my building. So the building went vacant and it was 2008. And to lease a bad building, a C building that's vacant, an industrial, it's a single tenant building. It's either 100% leased or 100% vacant. Yeah. It was 100% vacant. So we ended up not being able to get a new tenant. And we were lucky we found a neighbor who was looking to buy a building of this size, but times were really tough. And we didn't have the staying power just to say, hey, screw you. And he gave us an offer that was 900000 and so the 900,000 more or less paid off the debt, paid the commissions to the brokers, paid the closing costs. And we, maybe we lost, we, we lost, didn't, not a lot, but enough that we lost all of our equity. Yeah. We, we didn't lose beyond uh, the mortgage, but we lost our 400,000 of equity. It was a terrible experience. And that was just one of the things that led up to me believing that, there are investors out there who share my ultra conservative risk averse position that they're not looking to make a fortune. Most of them are already wealthy enough that what they're concerned about is not losing their fortune. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, and I, and I do want to go there. Um, I want to make a point though, about that building that you just talked about and you violated your buy criteria. So if you're listening here, don't violate your buy criteria. You have a buy criteria for a reason, stick with that. And if you don't have a buy criteria for a reason, get a reason for it, because there needs to be a reason why you're wanting to buy the specific properties that you're buying. It, it, you, you know, what makes a good industrial building. Right. It's got to have the high ceilings, got to have the docks. It's it, it's got to have a lot of the industrial and very little of the office. All, all those things that you talked about, you saw something or your business partner saw something. It looked good on paper. Right. And and so many times do we find, and that's the story of the C class properties for me, of buying a crappy neighborhood, a crappy property that doesn't it doesn't hit the buy box. And I go, wow, this thing looks so good on paper, right? So good on paper. I'm gonna buy this thing. And then reality strikes because the paper is awesome, 
right? It, you, you, we can always make it look good. But the reality strikes, and this tenant of yours says, been here for a long time, but I got this building across the street or whatever that it's got everything. It, it checks all my boxes and I'm going to go. <laughs> yeah, like, that's what yeah. happened. That's what happened. Yeah. yeah. And, and so now you're stuck. So, uh, man, that. So this is one of the things that I find interesting is talking about my loser deals. Um, yeah. Everybody has a bad deal. Yeah. There's no such thing as someone who has all good deals. If someone says I've never lost money, it means that uh, they're going to, they just won't know how to handle it. Yeah. They're either newer in the business, right? They're taking no risks or they've been getting lucky for so for a long time. And like you said, they're going to lose money. You're, you're just, yeah. you're going to lose money in the, in the business. It just is every business, by the way, it's not just real estate investors, every investor, every business goes through periods of time where they lose money. It's ebbs and flows. It's just the way it is. Um, you know, Sam Zell, who his, his uh, in-house attorney was my neighbor growing up. <laughs> she, her name was Shelly Rosenberg. And Shelly said to me when I was doing my real estate deals in the beginning, I hadn't lost any money for quite a while because yeah. I was new. And I got in during a recession. So I got in at really good pricing. So like people who got in after 2008, yeah. They've never seen a bad period. And I said to Shelly, we've done really well. We haven't lost any money. And she said, we, we say something in, in Sam Zell's organization, which is everyone's human and everyone's going to make a mistake. So you just haven't had that mistake yet. And you have to figure out how you're going to handle the mistake, how you're going to mitigate the, the problem. You know, Sam Zell bought the Chicago Tribune company and yeah. lost a fortune on it. He did everything he touched didn't go great. Yeah. But he had, he had, he said something else which I really loved which is that if you're a baseball player you get paid 100 million dollars if you can hit one out of 3 times you get up at bat. There's yeah. nobody who hits 100% of the time at bat. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, as an investor you want to hit better than one out of 3, but but I mean, you know, look that's super valuable. What you just said there, and and the, that that lesson is that you need to be prepared. You need to understand you are going to lose at at some point in time. You are going to lose, and you might have a lot of wins in a row, and it might feel like you're invincible. But if you're not prepared for that loss, if you don't understand that that's a possibility, then you're just you're going to get caught off guard and and. I think you're worse off for it, right? If you're prepared Absolutely. for it, if you understand it, and if you've kind of, it's never going to feel good. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't feel good when you lost. <laughs> no, it, it was terrible. And yeah. you and I share a philosophy on due diligence and how to do it, which is do it in, impeccably, right? Yeah. Be impeccable in your due diligence. Yeah. And that's something that helps. I, I have two things that I do to try to, mitigate losses one is this buying properties with no debt or at the very most we just bought a property uh with 30 percent debt 70 percent okay. equity yep it was a 13 million dollar deal and we borrowed 4 million and we have 9 million that was invested in cash and hmm. even that worries me even having a four million dollar loan on a 13 million dollar property but why, we did why did you why did you do that why didn't you just get all 13 in cash. Was there a reason for it? Yes. Yes. I had to raise the money in a hurry. 
because we waived our due diligence and the seller was a family that was just looking to get rid of each other. They, well, I can't say that. They were yeah, looking to get they, rid of the they, they wanted to move on quickly. They wanted to move on, right. Yeah. And they, they had a complex relationship where they were in multiple business things with each other. And this was a complication. They, they were um, in the business of making fruit juice concentrate and they sold the company. Uh, it's called the Tampico is the name of this company. And it's a very large company. It's like a hundred million dollar business. Yeah. And they sold the company, but the sister and the mother and the brother owned a company that was in a competing business with their tenant and they owned the property together. And there were so many complications. They just had to get rid of it. Yeah. And I only could raise $9 million in a period of 60 days. That's as far as I got. So I had my bank standing by and I said, my bank's called Union National Bank. And I called uh, my banker, Jay Dice. And I said, Jay, I might need to borrow $4 million on a $13 million deal. And he said, fine, just let me know. Because 30% is easy for 30 a bank. 30% is easy. Yeah, it's easy. I said, I need it to be interest only. He said, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, and it, yeah, you're borrowing that little, and a bank's going to be okay with it, right? They're yeah, four four million dollars. We're talking thirteen million dollar deal. They feel pretty good. And but every other deal that I I've been doing, if there's smaller deals, three million, two million, we do them all cash because that's an easier raise. If if we have to go out and borrow yeah. money on a three million dollar deal at this point, we're, we're we have bigger problems. So how? How do you interest investors in your deals? You've got you've got these deals that are structured all cash, which is attractive. That's an attractive in itself. I understand that. But your returns are not the same as if you leveraged them. They just aren't, right? You you leverage this, you've got the principal pay down, um, plus you've got um, uh, you know, just just leverage. So you're raising less less equity. So you're getting higher IRRs. I guess, is that a big concern for your investors? Do you have a lot of investors that are like, Hey, they, these returns are too low. No. So talk through that. No. So let me give you the profile of our investors. I'm sure it's similar to yours. We have some investors who don't know a lot about real estate mm -hmm. and we have some investors who sold their business for a billion dollars and they know a lot about real estate. They know a lot about a lot of things. Yeah. And I went to my accountant when I first started to do this no debt thing. And I said, I think it's for me, I feel like I'm a gambler if I'm borrowing money. I don't want to be a gambler. I said, I'm going to do deals all cash, no debt. And he said, well, you'll never get any investors. It's not how real estate works. And I said, well, I think I need a new accountant because I need someone who believes that what I'm about to do is a good idea. He says, well, I don't think it's a good idea. And I found a new accountant and I went to him and I said, I want to do these deals all cash. And he said, I'll invest. And I probably have a list of 15 or 20 other investors who are my clients that will invest. No one does this. I understand it. You're not going to make the same kind of hits if it's a sale later on. And because there's no leverage, you're not multiplying your returns, but my people and I were in our 50s and 60s and 70s and older and we'd rather be safe 
what kind of what kind of yield can you generate? I said, well, I think I can get seven and eight percent starting yield with annual escalations. He said, count me in, count me in, I'm in, and I'll, I'll get you all these other people. And he sent me a list. He said, you have to call my people. I'm not going to call them. I'll just send them an email saying, I recommend you look at this. And I called his people, and uh, almost all of them went in because they believe that that my philosophy has a place in their portfolio. It can't be their whole portfolio because they they want to make more in places. Yeah. But this is, I tell people, if you're going to do my deals, don't put more than 3% of your net worth in my stuff. Just don't. It's not smart. But if you have an allocation, if you, if, if a person is a 1% or, you know, the wealthiest people in the country are in the top 1% and their net worth is $11 million or greater. So somebody who's got a, an $11 million net worth can put $300,000 into a deal with me and it's not going to ruin their future growth possibilities, but it's something where they can sleep at night knowing that this particular deal is of a variety that it's risk averse and it's just sitting there and that they can yeah. get a seven or eight percent cash on cash return. It's different. And and I have people who I've talked to have said, are you crazy? I would never do that. And they're mostly younger who say that. Who are working, who are making a really good living and saying, you know what, I'm in the growth period. I'm not in the maintaining and preservation period. That's later. Yeah. Yeah, they're probably the most of those people too that say that are probably not your target uh, investor demographic, right? They, they don't hit, they, or even a target investor demographic, like they don't, they don't quite have the net worth yet. They don't have the liquidity yet. And they're, they're, if they're going to invest in real estate, they're probably going to be doing it themselves. They're going to flip a house or they're, you know, so not everyone. Certainly there's older people that are wanting to take big risks, but um, yeah, I think that that's. An I find, I find that really wealthy people actually have a little pocket of money that they call their gambling money. Yeah. And they, they want to have some action. So they, they actually, if someone's got a hundred million dollar net worth, they may say, I'm going to invest a half a million this year in something that's super risky. And if I lose it all, then I do. Yep. And, for them, that's fun, but it's a very uh, set, well-thought-out decision that they've made, and they do that. But that same person might invest in an all-cash deal with me because they have enough assets that they want to spread it around and have diversification like that. Yeah, I mean, I've got – that's a perfect example. I've got an investor that's just like that. He's got – he invests in Silicon Valley startup companies, and he's a little less risk uh, risky than a lot of people because he's – partnering with them and and they, he he actually consults these companies that he invests in so but either way he's like i know i'm going to invest in 10 of them and mm -hmm. one of them is going to be a home run three to five of them are going to be complete flops and i'm going to lose every dollar that i invest in them and the, the other ones might return me a little bit might re, you know it, it might it might hit a real estate type of return it might hit you know, a bond type return, but, and then I'm going to hit on one that really does well. And, and so he knows that, and he likes the real estate as well. Cause he knows he's like, this is just where it's at. Right. I have a guy, one of my original investors sold his business. He, he had a company called Lord label 
his name was Maynard Lewis, and they had, I think, seven label printing plants around the country, and they sold the business. And he decided he was going to be a risk-only player. He wasn't going to go to anything safe. He said, I'm just going to take a lot of risk because I know one of them will hit. And the one that hits, I'll make a hundred times what I put in. Yeah. So he was really a gambler. I mean, he really wanted to play the game and he invested. He told me that he invested in approximately 20 companies and he put about a half a million dollars in each one. Hmm. So you're talking about roughly $10 million. Yeah. He lost his money or is still was still struggling with survival of the companies literally all but two in one he made maybe three four times his money but there was one deal which was a fan blade manufacturing company that sold fan blades for refrigerators in the back of a refrigerator they had the, the little fan that goes around and around and they made these little fan blades for all kinds of and computers you know every ever there's fan blades everywhere and he bought into fan blades at the right time with a partner and he made two thousand percent so ultimately, so, it's almost as if like he had just done a bunch of safe ones and would have a normal ratio of good to bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He was just gambling with it. Because think if that one didn't actually hit. <laughs> no, then you're really screwed. Oh, man. Yeah, it's interesting. I love the philosophy. I'm actually... Um, I, I leverage everything and I have always leveraged everything, but I've never loved it. And I've done bridge debt. I've done uh, some hard money with single families. I've done fixed rate debt. I've done every kind of debt, but I've, I've never been in love with it. And I always feel the same ways. We're taking a gamble. We're, we're taking a big risk, especially when you have to personally guarantee that. Cause now, man, it's not only that, you're taking a risk on that deal. You're taking, when you personally guarantee a one loan, you're taking a risk on a lot of stuff. Right. Oh, yeah. and, and so I, I really enjoy um, listening to your philosophy and why you're doing this. And I think it's, I think it's very smart. And I think there's a lot of people out there that would love this type of opportunity, right. That, that they would love to get in deals that have, no loans on them. And I think your time is probably coming as far as investor interest in a big way over the next few years, because you're, we're probably going to see a lot more money lost on deals that are highly leveraged. Yeah. The thing is, I respect that you do debt and that other people do debt. And I respect people who are good at structuring deals and the smartest investors do, do use debt. They, they, they see that there's an advantage to the magnification of leverage. Well, smart's all relative too, though. The, you can't say that because I think it's really smart not to do debt. It's just different as far as what your risk profile is and, and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, if I could use debt, if I had the temperament to do it, I would do it. But my temperament is such that I've learned the lesson that for me, I can't. I just can't do it. It's a, it's a, a red line that I'm not going to cross of doing anything more than 30% loan to value. And 
maybe one out of every four deals with that kind of leverage and the other three out of four with no leverage. I'm not recommending it to anybody as, hey, you should go do no debt deals. I don't think there's anyone else in the entire country who's doing no debt deals like this as a syndicator, but I'm not saying that it's brilliant. It's just a, a single strategy that some people like. It's a very small number that love it because they're looking to preserve. And I just, I'm not, I'm not like a zealot saying anyone else should do it. Yeah. But for me, I, I just wouldn't be able to sleep at night. And I got into this huge fight with my partner, the one who pushed me to do that first deal with a lot of debt that led to, to 48 more deals with a lot of debt. And ultimately, the pressure of owing all that money to all those lenders and to being responsible and to answering to investors and sending them these horrible letters of how bad things were going and how much trouble we were in, it caused us to split. The partner and I split because when you're fighting over who's going to write a check, not how do you divide up a pie of profit, but who's going to write a check for the losses. You know, you look at every rock group breaks up. The, the Rolling Stones are an exception, but every rock, it's like egos and, and they're, some of them are making money. It's just, how do you have a partner and make things work? Well, put yourself in a position where everything is horrible and your wife is saying, why are we losing all this money? Why isn't Dave stepping up? And Dave's wife saying, why isn't Joel stepping up? And you're both looking for ways to get out of problems. I I've learned that I don't want to have those kinds of relationships either in the all cash deals. I, my, my current partner is a, a guy younger than I am. He's 20 years younger. His name is Eric Schneider. And we talk all the time about how he's bought into my philosophy because we're not going to have a fight. We just don't have to fight. If things don't go well, we'll figure it out, but we won't be chased by lenders. Yeah. And we won't have to answer to investors as to why they're losing all this money. Yeah, the margins just become so much thinner, right? The margins for real estate are, are pretty good when you have no debt. Right. I don't, I don't, what's it, what's industrial, what's a typical industrial building margin without, without debt. What do you mean by margin? Yeah. Profit versus your, your expenses, gross, gross profit versus your expenses. Oh, well, the tenant like multifamily is 50%, right? 50%, oh, so you know, you, you got your, uh, your expenses are about 50% of your income. Yeah, well, this yeah, is interesting. Industrial is different because in industrial, the tenants pay everything as if they own it. It's called it's called a net lease. Triple net lease, oh. right? So it's not triple. It's not triple net because we usually take the roof because okay. tenants don't want to take the roof. But we do take when the pipes explode under the under the parking lot and you know the water connected to the city. Hmm. But generally speaking, the tenants pay everything. So including the management fee in some cases. So yeah. it's very interesting. Our margin is a hundred percent. Yeah, that's crazy. But without a tenant in there of course that you still have the expenses we are so screwed without a tenant yeah without a tenant taxes insurance maintenance and utilities those are the four things yeah and we have to pay all of them when the buildings go still have to pay it all of it so yeah. either we're making a hundred percent on our investment which the noi let's say it's an eight percent return and let's say that the rent is um 
uh, we have a building that it's an all cash deal. The rent is $230,000 a year. It's a $2.7 million deal. It's an eight and a half, nine 9% return. And the tenant pays the taxes, the tenant pays the insurance. The tenant, and they've been there for 25 years. So, but on something like that, let me, let me, okay. So something like that, where you got 230,000, did you say a year, 230 yeah. a year? What, what would be the expense if that was vacant then? Well, the taxes are running about 60,000 okay. a year. The utilities probably about 40,000 a year. So that's a hundred. The, the insurance, um, about 10,000 a year. So 110 and then some miscellaneous maintenance things. So roughly 50% margin, but it's different. Yeah. Like you said, your, your tenants paying that. Yeah. You, so. Yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, but, but I guess my, my original point was that real estate has good margins. Yours obviously has really good margins, but if it's vacant, you still have expenses, but then when Which you, is, by the way, now you can see why I was in such trouble. Yeah. Cause you add in a mortgage and you got even, I mean, holy cow. Single tenant buildings, one tenant, <laughs> tenant leaves vacant. And I had 10 vacant buildings at one point in 2008 and 2009 out of 50 buildings and personal guarantees on all the loans. Mm. Uh, it was, it was hell, man. It was just terrible. So in our business, maybe it's, it's industrial centric that doing all cash deals is, is important. If I, you, maybe if we had a hundred tenants in a multifamily deal, I wouldn't feel the same way. Yeah. Well, margins are still, there though um uh, do you do you buy and hold long term or do you look no. for an exit so when we buy this these are our statistics roughly when we buy we flip usually one out of every four and okay. then three we keep long term and long term means minimum seven years sometimes i, I have a building we've owned for 33 years hmm. wow yeah it just it, every time the lease comes up if the tenant renews we keep it. When the lease comes up, we put it on the market for lease or sale and whatever comes first, we take. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So we sell when we can't lease and we try to lease. Leasing is our number one priority because keeping a building long-term and it, by the time it's 20 years in, instead of making it an 8% return on our original equity, theoretically we're making 12, 14, 15 as a yeah. yield. Yeah. It, and we give that and then we and then we sell it we have to pay the taxes on it so now everybody gets hit with the recapture of the depreciation and the profit and so instead of getting a hundred thousand dollars on on your fifty thousand you put in it's a hundred thousand minus thirty so you're getting seventy and you're giving the government the money and you're no longer making the return on the whole thing yeah that's it <laughs> That's very much unspoken. Uh, I think so many people discount that when they look at these real estate deals and they look at a syndication and they go, okay, this is great. I made, you know, a, a, or my investors made a 25 IRR and yet they discount the fact that their investor, yeah, sure, certainly did make a 25% IRR, but they got to pay, they got to pay the government. Yeah. And the government find the next deal, by the way, yeah. too. <laughs> you're, you're, the government is like having a bad partner. It's like having a yeah. partner who came from hell because you must pay them. There's no negotiating. 
Yeah. You must pay them every single time. Yeah. And they take a giant chunk away giant from you. Chunk. And it's required by law. There's no partnership that requires by law that you give a chunk of your money to your partner. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it, so, yeah, you give a big chunk to your partner, the government. And they, they, go gotta... spend, they go spend it on roads in the military. <laughs> well, and, you know, those are at least good, the good things. That your they your partner on. on a sale is. We can talk about some of the other things they spend it on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, you know, keeping it though and just cash flowing it, you're not paying taxes and you're just making the profit. And so that's a huge value of keeping these properties. When you said you kept you got a property that you've kept for over 30 years, I mean, man, it's just cash flow. And the yeah. investors, they've already gotten their money back. Right. Oh yeah. When when we when we get a great tenant, when we get a great tenant and they never leave, people, yeah. industrial tenants don't like to leave because to move costs. If you if you're in an apartment and you have to move your furniture, you can do it in a weekend. But a company that's in a certain place, they have to be there. They have their machines there. Their employees are used to going there. They can't afford to lose employees by moving somewhere else. One of our our fun ones is we have the U.S. Postal Service. They have a packaged warehouse in in Chicago and right near downtown. And we bought the building um, with a tenant. The tenant moved out, and we got lucky, and the post office moved in. Yeah, and They'll never leave. We can't, we can't, we try to evict them. They wouldn't leave. They, they stop, they, they pay rent late. It's hard to believe this, but they owe us more than any other tenant. Collecting from them is like collecting from a deadbeat C minus tenant. That doesn't surprise me. They're so disorganized. I've had section eight before. Doesn't surprise me. That's what they're like, but they, but they won't leave. We, we try to evict them and we won the case. And then our lawyer said, They've appealed it, and it's going to go to the post office magistrate, which means it's a post office judge. You're going to spend thirty thousand on legal fees, and you're going to lose because the judge works for them. <laughs> so we couldn't even get rid of it. We couldn't force them out of the building. Oh, funny. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if they're a good tenant or bad, but do you prefer industrial that has uh, a lot of equipment in it, like a manufacturing company where they? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Is yeah, that, is that something you really look for? Or is that part of your criteria? Yes, we have tenants that manufacture all kinds of products, food products. Uh, we have a tenant that was on Shark Tank in year one. He makes uh, protein bars. He's got 80 employees and 50,000 square feet, and they can't move. He spent a half a million dollars building uh, allergy rooms when he moved in because yeah. they can't mix peanuts and nuts with, with chocolate and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, I own one industrial um, it's an industrial office has actually got quite a bit of office. You probably wouldn't like it. It does have the, it does have the bays, but, um, they, it's a medical, um, development company. And so oh. they, they, most of the office has been turned into more of an R and D. Um, and, and then they, they have some front facing office, but most of it's been turned into like R and D type stuff, but they've spent so much money on, the, the equipment that's there infrastructure, and infrastructure. The infrastructure i mean it's just, yeah. it's just amazing when you walk through it it's like it's beautiful but holy cow like they, that would cost a lot of money to pull that stuff out of there and yeah. to put it somewhere else and say oh we're gonna save you know two dollars a, a square foot or something like that or no no a square foot. It's like no my 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 uh tampico the building we just bought in the city 
they have equipment that to move would cost $20 million. And the rent, yeah, and the rent for that building is only $8 a square foot, it's 40,000 feet. So it's $300,000 a year. So when they weigh their decision, every time the lease comes up, let's see, should we pay 300 or 350,000 in rent or should we move and spend $20 million? It's an easy decision. Easy to Let's just stay. Let's just stay. So that seems, I'm not a, like, industrial's not my niche. Uh, I own the one building. It's not my niche. But that seems like a big part of the recipe is if you can find a tenant that it costs a lot more money for them to move than to stay, you've got a tenant that's going to likely last for a long time, unless they go to business, of course, but that's our game. That's our game. And one last thing before we go, the other thing about industrial that's so interesting is single tenant industrial is different than multi-tenant multi-tenant buildings. Half of the buildings here of the 16,000 have multiple tenants, but a single tenant building can be sold to a user who buys it. The next door neighbor. Why? Because they can't move their equipment and to expand, the best place to expand is right next door where you can connect the two buildings with a hallway. Hmm. So we have 600 roughly buildings in Chicago that are connected by hallways where the company grew and then they bought the building next door. Yeah. That's that's our yeah. exit strategy is selling to the neighbor. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's... That and there leads into another kind of criteria that you're looking for, right? When you're buying a building, so love that, yeah. Joel. I, this has uh, definitely been a good, interesting conversation. I've yet to have somebody on uh, that buys buildings with cash. I don't talk to a ton of industrial uh, investors either, so I always love digging in a little bit on the industrial. Um, I've got a couple last questions I want to ask. One is, what's a favorite book you can recommend to our listeners? The Four Agreements by Ruiz. It's a great little book. It takes two hours to read. Mm-hmm. And it talks about how to live your life in a way that's very um, enriching. And there's really four, there's four agreements. And the, the main one is be impeccable with your word. Uh, do your best. Don't take things personally because all you're going to do is upset yourself and everybody else. It's a great book. Love it. Love it. All right. So last final question, what are your three pillars of wealth creation? You already mentioned the first one, I guess. Yeah. Say, family, say it like I want to get family, family, family. Yeah. <laughs> it's really important. That, and so many families have internal fights with each other. So part of it is family and getting along with your family as opposed yeah. to, letting little resentments build up from either childhood or being in a family business together. That happens a lot. Yeah. The other one, the next, second one for me is freedom. You know, here I am sitting in Delray beach, uh, the freedom to, to leave town and rent a house and have a pool in the backyard and to work, you know, the hours that we want to work and to have, to have clients and investors who are really good people and be able to choose freely who to work with and how to do it. Love it. Yeah. And then the third one I think is uh, really just relationships. Everything comes down to that. Having great relationships here in Florida. Last night we went out to 
uh, dinner with one of our investors who's become a good friend. And we went to her home uh, in, in Boca Raton. And then she took us to uh, a program where they showed a, a movie. Uh, and then the guy who made the movie did a little talk afterwards. To be able to do that and have investor relationships and friendship relationships like that. Today, we're having lunch with, with another one of our people who we love. It's just, that's what it comes down to yeah. for me. Yeah, love that. Joel, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Learn more about what you got going on. Our website is BrittProperties.com. B-R-I-T with one T, properties. Awesome. Joel, again, really appreciate appreciate the, um, I, I guess, just telling us you, you you didn't have to tell us that you lost a bunch, you know, you lost some property, not a bunch, as you said, but you lost some properties, you had nine. some troubles. You had nine problems, nine out nine of all problems. I mean, you know, first of all, that the odds, you know, stacked in your favor, but it doesn't make it any easier. And I appreciate you talking about that, just being open and, um, you know, being vulnerable to our, to our audience. It helps. I think it helps everybody out. It helps people that are either in a similar situation right now, going through that or have been through it, or maybe will go through it at some point in their career. So I think, uh, super valuable to hear those types of stories from people. Um, man, any last words you want to leave our audience with? Uh, yeah, I think everybody should watch your other, uh, podcasts where you're a guest and a host. I think you've got lots of great insights. I have, I've, I've been on a number of podcasts and I can tell you that, um, you're one of the top thinkers and I like the way you approach everything a lot. Oh man. R really appreciate that. That means a lot to me. Um, definitely appreciate that. Well, Jill, um, again, thanks a lot. And you have a fantastic rest of the day. Thanks. You too. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. But your rating and review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to VentureDProperties.com, VentureDProperties.com and download our free ebook uh, on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and, and also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.